one really crucial thing to understand is that every symptom and every disease is necessarily a result of dysfunction in cells. It's not like symptoms arise out of thin air. There is dysfunction happening in cells for symptoms to arise. And there's lots of different things that can cause dysfunction. But one of the the common mediating factors that seems to be emerging in a lot of American and Western bodies is that this metabolic dysfunction is one of those key things that's going on. This is the Made for Living Well podcast, hosted by Alexa Sherm the place to create a life well-lived. Welcome back to Made for Living Well. I'm so glad you're here. This is the very first podcast back after the summer series, How You Heal. And honestly, I had such a blast doing that podcast series. I was a little hesitant going into it because I didn't have a full plan, but I couldn't be happier for the way that it turned out and how it has helped you. Now, if you haven't listened to those podcasts, I would encourage you to go back and do so. There is a flow to them. So I would recommend starting back at episode 302, where the whole podcast series began. But today we are getting into just our regularly scheduled program with more interviews and of course, solo shows mixed back in. Now, today in the podcast, we're talking about metabolic health and managing your blood sugar, which is a topic that my husband and I have teased here on the show, and he is coming back on in the next podcast to share more of his journey, what he learned, and what I learned on this blood glucose monitoring journey that we've been on. Now, today we do have the founder of the company, Levels, on the show, And I am thrilled for you to get to hear from her why she created Levels and really what we need to know about managing and regulating our blood sugar. So today on the show, we welcome Dr. Casey Means, who is a Stanford-trained physician, chief medical officer, and co-founder of the metabolic health company Levels. She's also the associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention, And overall, her mission is to maximize human potential and reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic disease by empowering individuals with tech-enabled tools that can inform smart, personalized, and sustainable dietary and lifestyle choices. She has been featured in a number of well-known magazines and publications, including the New York Times, Men's Health, Forbes, Business Insider, TechCrunch, and Entrepreneur Magazine. I'm so thrilled and honored that Dr. Means is on the show today, and I think you're going to love hearing more about Levels and even a little bit about my own personal experience. Now, as I mentioned in the next podcast, my husband and I are going to dive in much deeper into our personal journey with Levels and what we learned about our body, which is quite shocking, honestly. And because I love Levels so much, I have worked with them to offer you a chance to win a free membership to Levels for you to try this out for yourself. To enter into that giveaway, which I recommend all of you doing, head on over to levels.link backslash the living well giveaway. Again, that's levels.link backslash the living well giveaway. Now I must say this giveaway is only open for the next few weeks. So make sure you listen right away and head on over there to insert your email. Now, if you're listening to this after the giveaway is closed, you can still learn more at levels.link backslash the living well. 
I also have a special offer for you if you use that link to purchase your own Levels device by offering you a free one-on-one consulting session to help you make the necessary changes to see the results that you want to see. And I know that was a lot. So I've spelled it all out for you at thelivingwell.com inside the Levels blog. So head to thelivingwell.com to find all of the information, including getting your Levels kit with that free consultation. But for now, let's dive into why blood sugar matters and welcome Dr. Means to the show. Well, welcome to the show, Casey. I'm thrilled to have you on and talk about a product that I have fallen so hard for. Um, It like brings full circle everything I think nutritionist talks about, but it allows people to see in real time. So you work for the company Levels, and I just want to, you know, thank you for being here. And I'm excited to hear more about what you know and how you can help us. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and I'm excited to talk all things metabolic health and blood sugar. Yeah. So metabolic health is obviously a massive topic that I think everyone in the health space is talking about, trying to get a handle on and what does this look like? Can you just share what metabolic health means to you and why this is so important? Absolutely. Metabolic health fundamentally is how we make energy in the body. Mm -hmm. So at the highest level, we have these trillions of cells, somewhere between like 30 and 100 100 trillion cells. We don't know for sure, but it's a lot. It's a lot of cells. Every single cell needs cellular energy to do every single thing that it does. And essentially what our lives are, are the bubbling up of all those chemical reactions in our trillions of cells, all of which are powered by cellular energy, most of which is this substance called ATP. That's Mm -hmm. essentially like the money that we pay for every single chemical reaction that bubbles up into our lives. And in the body, metabolism is how we convert food energy to cellular energy. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's so important is because if that process isn't working properly, we have underpowered cells and underpowered cells are dysfunctional and dysfunctional cells is the root of what causes most chronic diseases and symptoms in the United States today. Mm -hmm. Nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the U S are in some way related to metabolic dysfunction. So Somewhere in the last hundred or so years, through a confluence of dietary and lifestyle factors of our modern industrialized world, moving more away from our natural roots as humans, we have actually uh, broken our metabolic machinery in many ways, such to the point that most of the leading causes of death in our, in our country, and just so many of the more like sublethal pain points that we deal with today from like infertility and depression, anxiety, gout, migraines all related to metabolic dysfunction. So really the the root of my mission and the mission of the company that I co-founded Levels is to help people understand their current level of metabolic health and then use a tool um, that has become recently more accessible to people, uh, which is called a continuous glucose monitor to really zero in on where you're at metabolically, and then how various elements of your diet and lifestyle can support improved metabolic health. Again, metabolic health being uh, efficient, properly powered cells um, that ultimately give us our greatest life force. You know, metabolism is cellular life force. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're seeing in our world, and it's getting worse every year, is that we're actually having sort of this dimming of our cellular life force. And that's a big problem for the human species. And we need to really get on top of it for us to reach our maximum 
I think, full potential as humans and, and just really reach our, our highest calling in life. We need to be well-powered. So that's why I'm really passionate about metabolic health and why people really do need to need to care and know about it. Yeah. I love how you use it as like a dimming of that life force because that energy inside of our cells is so critically important. And we talk about this a lot here uh, at the living well is like, how do we upregulate that energy that is there and, you know, make us live to our fullest. So our body doesn't have to compensate. Now you mentioned like infertility and issues that maybe, you know, people, when we talk about metabolic dysfunction, obviously go to weight right away, but I think we miss the linkage to all these other disease processes. Can you connect some of those dots to us? Like how is your metabolism linked to your hormones? And like, how, how is this creating the disease based on this, this dimming of our cells? Yeah. Yeah. So we have like hundreds of different cell types in our body. We all start from one cell, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's like a fertilized embryo and that's a stem cell. And it turns into just hundreds of different types of cells from like a retinal cell to an ovarian theca cell, to an endothelial cell that lines our blood vessel to a several different types of skin cells, keratinocytes, melanocytes, all these things. It's amazing. It's like miraculous. Yes. It's so miraculous. And and the craziest thing is that they're turning over constantly. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the body we were a year ago is a completely different cellular and atomic body than it is today. And that's just, we're so dynamic. It's really incredible. And, um, one really crucial thing to understand is that every symptom and every disease is necessarily a result of dysfunction in cells. It's not like symptoms arise out of thin air. There is dysfunction happening in cells for symptoms to arise. And there's lots of different things that can cause dysfunction. Um, but one of the, the common mediating factors that seems to be emerging in a lot of American and Western bodies is that this metabolic dysfunction is one of those key things that's going on. And so you've got all these different cell types and so each of based on what cell type is having dysfunction, you're going to have different symptoms. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a, if it's an endothelial dysfunction, uh, that could look like high blood pressure or atherosclerosis, blockage of an artery in the penis. Blood vessel problems can look like erectile dysfunction in the kidney. It can look like chronic kidney disease, but blood vessel problems in the eye could look like retinopathy in mm-hmm. the brain. It could look like ischemic stroke in the large vessels of the heart. It could look like a heart attack. So you basically. Um, the reason there all these diseases and symptoms can be connected to metabolic dysfunction is because there's a core common pathway that's getting broken. That's then showing up in different cell types. Therefore different symptoms arise. And the way we traditionally categorize symptoms and diseases in the Western medical system, because of the tools we had at the time to understand disease, you know, 50, 100, 200 years ago, is that we describe diseases based on their symptoms and often based on biomarkers that go awry downstream. What we haven't been able to do in the past is actually describe disease based on what's going on inside the cell or what's problematic, because that's obviously like more advanced, right? right, right. Knowing like yeah. cellular signaling pathways yeah. and mitochondrial function and proteomics, metabolomics, genomics, all, you know, epigenetics, all this stuff. Like we didn't have that. So we didn't describe diseases based on actual functional or dysfunctional changes in the biology. We described what we saw and what we saw mm-hmm. is that all these diseases look different. Alzheimer's looks different than arthritis looks different than erectile dysfunction. That looks different than, right. than polycystic ovarian syndrome. So we're like, Oh, they're all different. 
And now what we're realizing is like, wait, actually, maybe they're all the same in many ways, but they look different because of how they're showing up in different cell types. That's a really key reframe that people need to understand. It's actually also a really empowering reframe because you actually have to do less. Mm -hmm. Like you have to focus on the trunk of the tree, which Mm -hmm. again, in many cases is metabolic dysfunction. Um, and a problem with this food to energy conversion. Uh, and then often when you really focus on the right thing, if you can identify that the trunk of the tree is something like metabolic dysfunction, which you can do through testing, you can say, Oh, I'm going to fix that. And what often happens is that so many symptoms just start sort of melting Mm -hmm. away. And, and that's pretty amazing. So it's like someone might really focus on improving their, their metabolic health, stabilizing their blood sugar levels. And what they might find is that their mood gets better. Their energy gets better. Their sleep gets better. Their libido gets better. Their periods get more regular. Their mild knee and toe arthritis get better. Um, you know, their psoriasis gets better. Their acne gets better. All these little things that you've been like going to all these specialists about, you're like, Oh, they're all just kind of getting better. And what's really amazing is that when that, or maybe their belly fat starts sort of like diminishing a little bit, their inflammation. And then the really cool thing is that because we know that some of these symptoms, they're basically like the body showing this like warning sign of like, there might be something up. And those things can lead to the bigger things down the road, like the Alzheimer's dementia, the stroke, the heart disease, the chronic liver disease, the type two diabetes. And so, because these are all currently in our world right now on a, on a metabolic spectrum, mm-hmm. um, getting to the trunk of the tree can not only help you like now, like, like in your current day-to-day life, maybe as a young person who kind of seems pretty healthy, but you've got these sort of like nagging issues, but you really are also investing in setting up your cells for physiology. That's going to hopefully prevent some of these bigger issues down the road. Yeah. And I love that because I feel like in the health space, we're just so zoomed in that it complexifies what really for the average person shouldn't be difficult. It's just understanding and, and having that knowledge of what specifically do I need to do? And when it comes to like metabolic health, like you're using a simple, I don't want to say simple. I mean, it's very complex system inside the body, but for us, like a simple level that helps indicate this metabolic metabolic level of health. And that's specifically you're using blood sugar. Why is that so important in the overall metabolic health? Like, what do we need to know about, like, I worry people villainize things like insulin too much or, you know, like, like, how do we find this balance to recognize, like, it's all powerful, all necessary, but what is the marker for why this is so important inside the system? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll go back inside the cell just for a second. Cause I think people really do need to kind of understand this. So that food to energy conversion process to make eat, like you take this food raw material that goes in and you need to figure out how to, the body has to basically all the time be figuring out how to convert it to ATP. That is that like, again, Mm -hmm. the money that pays for all these reactions that is primarily done by the mitochondria, which is a part of the cell. We have some cells have a few mitochondria. Some cells have thousands of mitochondria depending on how much their energy needs are. But that is where, that is the machine where this happens. Mm -hmm. You probably remember people remember from high school biology, it's the powerhouse, the cell. It's a really precious organ organelle inside our cells. And the, the mitochondria, when it gets damaged, which it is getting damaged by a lot of the ways that we're living today. And I'll just briefly allude to some of those things. We can talk about it more later, but environmental toxins, we have 80,000 plus synthetic toxins that have entered our food, water, air homes over the past 
hundred years mm-hmm. that are minimally regulated. And many of them are direct mitochondrial disruptors, um, ultra processed factory made food that has really skewed ratios of macronutrients and very limited micronutrients. Those can really overburden the mitochondria and create damage. Chronic low grade stress can damage the mitochondria because cortisol basically hurts its function. Even artificial light at the wrong times of the day, like having lots of this blue light coming Mm -hmm. from our screens late at night when we're supposed to be in the dark, secreting melatonin, getting towards sleep, that can be um, a disruptor of mitochondrial function. And then of course, sedentary behavior is one of the biggest disruptors of mitochondrial dysfunction because um, when you move your body, it tells the mitochondria to basically like do work mm-hmm. and to replicate and to become more efficient. It's a use it or lose it situation. And so by the average American, you know, getting like about 3000 steps a day, which is like barely moving, um, this is basically telling the mitochondria, like be complacent, don't work. It's okay. So there's all these things that are hurting mitochondrial function. Um, that's just a handful of them and they're all unique and and modern. And when that happens, you have this machine in the cell. That's not doing a good job of that conversion process of food to energy. So what happens is that the cells like, okay, our mitochondrial function is problematic, which means we can't do this conversion process. We can't do this efficiently. We can't make ATP efficiently. So to protect itself from being inundated with food, raw material, it blocks essentially entry of food nutrients into the cell to be converted because it's not going to be able to do it properly. Mm -hmm. So that is the process called insulin resistance, where essentially there's like a feedback mechanism saying like, um, we're not efficiently making energy block entry of food nutrients into the cell because we can't, we can't process them. So insulin, which is the hormone that's released to get glucose, a food nutrient out of the bloodstream into the cell, basically the, the receptor on the cell that binds to insulin and therefore lets glucose into the cell becomes inefficient. The the cellular signaling from the insulin receptor into the cell becomes blocked. That's insulin resistance. So the cell is now, you know, resistant to that hormone that allows glucose to normally get in, to be processed into ATP. And so that is why checking glucose can be really helpful because if that happens, what happens is your cell is essentially less able to take glucose up, which means after a meal, your glucose levels in the bloodstream are probably going to be higher. They're going to take longer to come out of the bloodstream. They're going to end up being higher in the morning. So your body's like not pulling it from the bloodstream well, but fundamentally the cause of that is from inside the cell. It's a problem with the machinery in converting food to energy. So what our focus needs to be is how to essentially take all these different dietary and lifestyle factors and pillars that we know are related to mitochondrial dysfunction, take inventory in our own lives of which ones might not be, you know, peak. Um, cause for each of us, it's going to be different. Like I might be, I might be like living a totally non-toxic life and like not using all clean products and really not having a lot of mitochondrial disruptors in my environment. Although living in America, you're going to have some, right. <laughs> uh, but I might be filtering my water and not using plastic and never using artificial scents and never eat, you know, all that. And I might have food totally dialed in all organic, perfect micronutrients, no processed foods, but maybe my sleep is crazy. And my chronic stress is really high and I'm getting artificial light at night. I'm going to have different things I need to dial in to free up that mitochondrial function than maybe you do. Maybe for you, it's two or three other things. Yeah. And so it's knowing what the lovers are taking stock in your own life of which ones need work, which is going to be different for everyone, dialing in those behaviors and hopefully getting some, you know, accountability, some support, maybe some tools to measure and monitor those things. 
And then you can track blood sugar, essentially like a readout Mm -hmm. to see if things are moving in the right direction or not. Because as your body becomes more able, more freed up to basically respond to that insulin signal, mitochondrial function is getting better. Insulin resistance going down. Glucose is moving to the cell more efficiently. You're going to see better glucose dynamics. And that's really both motivating, but also encouraging that you're moving in the right direction. It's certainly not the only blood test at all that you can use to monitor this whole process. There's several, which I, we could definitely talk about, but right now it's the only, it is the only molecule in the body that we can measure continuously, which is pretty crazy. Only sensor in America right now that you can get at a pharmacy or through a company and see something going on 24 hours a day in your body. It'd be so cool if we had other biomarkers, but not only is it a very important one, it's the only one we can measure. And it's a very good signal readout of metabolic health. And so that's one aspect of it is seeing how things are going Mm -hmm. and like what the dynamics are. The second piece is just dialing in the strategies. So you, we know that if you overwhelm the mitochondria with like too much sugar from your food or too much refined carbohydrates, which turns straight to sugar, that's that burden for the mitochondria saying like, you have so much work to do, convert all of this to ATP. And it like, it's like, I can't. And so bringing your blood sugar spikes down, like how much sugar your glucose, your body is just seeing from what's going in your mouth, getting that a little bit lower. So it's less like spike, spike, spike all throughout the day. And more like gentle rolling Hills is essentially like a gift to your mitochondria saying like, you don't need to work so hard. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you enough, but not too much. I'm not going to pound you all day with all this standard American diet. Right. And seeing that on a continuous glucose monitor where you can essentially be like, okay, this food caused a crazy spike. I didn't expect that, but now I know. So I'm either going to eliminate that food. I'm going to walk after the meal to pull some of it out of the bloodstream into my muscles, or I'm going to pair the meal differently. I'm going to add more fiber and more protein and maybe a little bit more fat. So it absorbs more slowly and doesn't pound my cells so quickly. So there's all these strategies you can do to basically be like less tough on your body. And so it's both a behavioral feedback tool, but also sort of like a trajectory tool to see where you are and where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. And I, when I used it, I found it for all of those reasons, um, was so incredibly helpful things that I didn't know, or like even my husband was using it at the same time. So to be able to compare, to say like, you can eat the exact same meal and both respond in incredibly different ways, um, which shows that diet is more than just this big boxed idea. It's very individual. And what I love about this tool is that it helps you to see how you are going to respond individually. Now you've mentioned a little bit. And one thing that I found for myself in levels is the stress component, um, was pretty massive. Um, I could see big jumps outside of what I ate. Um, you know, in times when I wasn't consuming food, I could see a spike if I got stressed or I, I wrote an article about this. My husband and I got into an argument and my blood sugar spiked like 30 points. And it, you know, like things like that, we can be like, Oh, does it really like people talk about it, but can you talk about why this mindset component too, even outside of, and I'm going to get into the foods that we consume, but outside of just things that we eat, these lifestyle components, are having an effect on our blood sugar. Absolutely. Stress can be a massive instigator of blood sugar rises in the body. And, um, it's definitely not a good thing for the body. And the, the physiology of what's happening is so fascinating. So we basically, um, 
we have a few different ways of keeping our blood sugar, um, keeping the right amount of blood sugar sort of in the body. We, we need to have essentially blood sugar floating through our bloodstream at all times in a, in a fairly, we want it in a fairly tight range because if you don't like, that's a huge sign to the body that there's a problem. Like, oh my God, we don't mm-hmm. have it. So, so the body's constantly tweaking how much blood sugar is in the bloodstream, pulling it out into the cells if it can, or putting more in. And one of the ways that it keeps levels steady is it stores about like a few hours worth of stored glucose in the liver as like a backup, um, in, in a storage form called glycogen, which is like chains of glucose. And it's like a debit account. Um, fat is sort of like our long-term storage of energy, but the liver is like a short-term storage of energy. The muscles also can do some short-term storage of energy in the form of chains of glucose. And then the blood is that immediate, like, so that's where you pull from immediately, but the liver can dump a little bit if you need to kind of like up the, the blood sugar levels. So a stress signal, specifically stress hormones like cortisol, Mm -hmm. um, or other stress hormones, like what are called catecholamine hormones, uh, they actually signal to the liver, like, okay, there's a problem right now. And this problem is likely going to require this person to like need energy to move very quickly away from this problem. Because historically throughout human history, most of our threats to our survival stresses, we're going to be something we need to move away from Mm -hmm. like a snake or a lion or whatever, like your muscles need energy. So that the signal of the stress hormone triggers the liver to very quickly, like within minutes, dump all this glucose into the bloodstream, ideally to feed the muscles. But recently in human history, our stresses have become much more psychological in nature. It's Mm -hmm. the text messages, the emails, it's the fight, it's the, you know, honking in the car, (laughs) it's the sensationalist media. So we get stressed, the same physiology happens, but we have nowhere to go. Like we're not moving our muscles. And so the blood sugar just sits there in the bloodstream and you see this big rise on your glucose monitor and, and your body's going to need to like, you know, release the insulin and take it into the cells and kind of do that whole process, which is not ideal. Um, and so that's, that's, what's happening. It's interesting when you exercise very hard, like high intensity interval training class or tough Peloton ride, or even like power lifting where something where you're really working hard, mm-hmm. often people also see a blood sugar rise where like they might be fasted, but their blood sugar might go up 50, 80 points. And people get really concerned about that. Like I didn't eat. Why is my blood sugar going up when I'm exercising? And it's a very similar physiology where that really hard workout was also a stress stress signal to the body. And so the liver also dumps that glycogen to feed the muscles. But interestingly, that one doesn't seem to be as problematic Mm -hmm. for the body long-term because you're actually using the glucose. You're doing a workout, you're doing something physical. So you're sucking it out of the bloodstream into the muscles to be used, Mm -hmm. which is actually like the mitochondria want to do that work, right? Like they want to take the glucose and convert it if it's going to be used, not just sitting there stored. Um, and so, so stress spike and high intensity interval training, high intensity exercise, um, spike, same sort of hormonal physiology that's happening, but the stress one is overall going to be damaging for the body long-term. And the exercise one is likely not problematic because you're actually using the glucose. Um, and I'll make just one more comment on exercise, which is that lower intensity exercises. So like a walk or yoga or a slow jog, um, 
those you probably won't see the glucose rise. You'll actually the glucose drop. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because you're using the muscles and you're utilizing glucose and you're pulling it out of the bloodstream, but it's not so stressful that you're going to have any of that liver action Mm -hmm. where the liver is releasing glucose. So that's actually an amazing tool for getting glucose out of the bloodstream after a meal is like more zone two or or gentle movement, sort of 50 to 75% of your max heart rate versus 80 and above, you're going to see that spike. And so both are fine, but if you're actually just trying to stabilize glucose after a meal, it's kind of those lower intensity, um, exercises that can be really effective and like seeing an immediate, if you just walk after a meal, you're, you're often going to see an immediate drop in your post-meal glucose levels. Yeah. What are some other fascinating things you've learned in, in the years that you've started? Because in all fairness, we don't have a ton of data on continuous glucose monitoring across the spectrum, right? Like we've done this with people who are suffering from diabetes, but like that's a, you know, they're, they're functioning at a different, maybe even hormonal level than the average person is. And so what are some things that you've learned or that you've been surprised by? Yeah. If you have anything to share. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Oh my gosh. I'm endlessly surprised and amazed. Um, a couple things. I think the first actually just speaks to what I was just talking about, which is just like how profound more movement throughout the day can be. So Mm -hmm. I think it's actually really gotten me to think differently about the whole concept of exercise. Yeah. I actually think our sort of modern concept of exercise actually could be hurting us in a way. Mm. And the reason for that is because we've turned what is this body that is meant to move. It's meant to move all day. It's meant to constantly be in low grade. Like you were not meant to sit for a long period of time. Like our bodies just were bipedal, you know, and we're, we've been nomadic, you know, often throughout human history as we were evolving. So this idea of exercise as like a discrete one to two hour thing that you do and you check off your list, it gets us really focused on that being the thing that we're striving for. And yes, exercise is really beneficial and we should do it, but it is not the answer for the movement needs of our body. Our body actually needs to be moving all throughout the day. And there's, so there's a real reframe that I think needs to happen, which I think the metabolic health, what we're understanding about blood sugar is helping to support which is showing that you should absolutely be exercising. You should be resistance training. You should be doing, you should be getting your heart rate up, but you should also be thinking about, especially if you're a knowledge worker who's sitting at a computer all day, how to build in short bursts Mm -hmm. of activity from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. So this might look like setting a timer every 30 minutes to get up and do 10 air squats. It might be setting a timer for every 30 minutes or an hour to walk for two minutes. That's it. Um, it might be, just something to enhance glucose disposal from the muscles throughout the day. Mm -hmm. You think about two bodies, one that sits for 12 hours with maybe like one to two little breaks to get up and get lunch or go to the bathroom and then works out for an hour versus someone who got up every 30 minutes for two minutes and then worked out for maybe 30 minutes at the end of the day, totally different physiology. And the reason is because every time you do those little teeny spurts of movement, even if it's literally just walking for two minutes, you are telling your cells 
to bring glucose channels to the cell membrane. The activity of moving muscles, even for just a few seconds, Mm -hmm. is moving a channel from the inside of your cell to the cell membrane, which can take up glucose. And it in, and, and muscle is one of the only tissues in the body that can do that without insulin. So you actually just the movement of muscles can stimulate the movement of these glucose channels to the cell membrane. So if you're doing that and just constantly hitting the body with that information yeah. signal from movement, you're a body that has these glute channels, these glucose channels on the membrane throughout the day versus the exerciser mm-hmm. who sits and does that for one to two hours is a body that doesn't have the glucose channels on the cell membrane throughout the day, but then gets the the hit at the end of the day or the beginning of the day. So different physiology. And there's in these really interesting studies showing that exactly what I'm saying, which is that you take three groups of people, one that maybe exercises for 20 minutes, three times a day, Mm -hmm. uh, before meals, one that moves 20 minutes, uh, three times a day after meals. Um, so that adds up to 60 minutes of movement. One that just does one chunk of 60 minutes of movement. And then one that splits it up into like a minute and 40 seconds of movement every half hour. So all of them add up to the same amount of movement, but in different patterns, it's the people who do the short bursts, um, Uh more regularly that have the best metabolic health biomarkers. Mm -hmm. So same amount of time, just spreading it out. So that's been one of, um, the biggest takeaways I think for me over the years. And, um, as I was just, I just finished uh, writing my first book, which is coming out next year. And that I, people have asked me like, what's, what's your biggest takeaway from writing yeah. a 400 page book about metabolic health. And I'm like, <laughs> walk more throughout the day. Like that literally that, that, that is the biggest take. It's not about, you know, ozone infusions and, and, mm-hmm. you know, NAD it's like move more throughout um, throughout the day. And, uh, one way that I think you can measure that is Mm -hmm. steps. Like, I think there, there's actually so much research to suggest that getting above 8,000 steps a day, Mm -hmm. like 10,000 is great, but it seems to be like almost diminishing returns, not diminishing, like, like, yeah, Yeah. diminishing returns after 8,000 cut your risk of things like depression, Alzheimer's, heart disease, obesity, diabetes by like 40 to 60%, depending on the diseases, Uh just by getting that amount of steps because it's a proxy metric for moving more throughout the day. So that's one. Um, And then a couple others, I'll just say briefly, and we can go into more if you want to, is like definitely the impact of sleep on blood sugar. It's profound. Um, Even getting like an hour less sleep might, you might see the next day on your, your blood sugar monitor that it kind of mm-hmm. ramps up your bl- fasting blood sugar, mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit. Your post-meal spikes might be higher. Um, another one, um, food related is that, um, I think breakfast foods in America are some of the worst possible things yeah. for blood sugar. Yeah. We've learned that. So like, especially cereals, mm-hmm. like even the ones that are considered healthy, yeah. we see massive spikes. If people have the word juice in their logs, they tend to have really high spikes. Um, there are definitely people who are eating, you know, cereals that have the word heart healthy on the box that are absolutely not heart healthy. And so it's cool to see people being able to learn that. But basically a lot of the things that you would see in a Starbucks or a coffee shop that are marketed as breakfast foods are some of the absolute worst things in our, in our data set from bagels to pastries, breads, um, 
you know, donut, mm-hmm. cereal, juice. It's like a lot of the stuff that we consider to be like a grab and go breakfast muffin. Mm-hmm. And then contrarily or conversely, there's all these amazing breakfast foods that cause minimal glucose spike and things like when people log like eggs and avocado, eggs and greens, eggs and bacon, frittata, chia pudding. Um, There's this smoothie that actually gets logged a lot because one of our medical advisors is um, Kelly Levesque and she, she has the smoothie that she's popularized called the fab Mm four smoothie, which is like a really well-balanced low sugar smoothie with fat fiber protein and low glycemic fruit. And that actually scores really well. So given that we know that glucose spikes Mm -hmm. are basically associated with more mood instability, energy instability, more cravings. That seems like a really high yield opportunity, like shifting breakfast culture through the use of this awareness tool. Mm -hmm. Because if you can set up your morning to be off that roller coaster, the whole rest of the day gets better. Mm -hmm. Fewer cravings, better energy, better sleep that night. And so I think breakfast foods are, are definitely one of the biggest opportunities we have in metabolic health. And I think a lot of people, that is their magic moment where they're like, Oh my God, my doctor literally told me to eat oatmeal (laughs) and I'm eating it. And I went up 80 points. And then of course I'm starving at 11 for lunch because I, I crashed after my oatmeal two hours later and my coffee with maybe a little bit of sugar and maybe some fruit and it's just too much glucose. And so people have learned how to balance that meal, which might be picking a lower glycemic fruit, you know, getting, converting the coffee drink to an unsweetened one, moving from instant oats to steel cut oats, adding more chia seeds and flax Mm -hmm. for fiber, modulate the whole thing so that it's more stable and, you know, maybe continue to eat what you love, but like change it, modify it so that it's not, that it's having the best kind of bang for your buck, as opposed to like tanking your energy and, you know, creating cravings. So, so those are some of the things I think that have been fun to see uh, over the years. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I noticed on mine, um, was what time of day I ate even the same meal, um, greatly varied, which I know that there's some research out about that and circadian fasting and things like that. But like, I could have a meal at lunch, but say one day I tried like pizza. I love pizza, you know? And I'm like, I, it, it has a spike, right. But I had it with a salad and some carrots and ranch with the pizza. And it really was pretty stable. Like it surprisingly didn't have this massive spike, but then I did it again for one night for supper and it was completely different, (laughs) like a a night and day difference in just how my body responded to that. Are you seeing that too? Mm -hmm. Definitely. We see that a lot. Um, and there is a lot of research out on this. And, And the thought is, um, that, at night, we may be a little bit more insulin resistant, like mm-hmm. insulin resistance is something that, that fluctuates, um, sleep can make you more insulin resistant. L- lack of sleep can make you more insulin resistant the next day. Yeah. High intensity interval training or lifting can make you more insulin sensitive the mm-hmm. next day. Um, so there's these, it's very, it's, it's very like a dynamic, which mm-hmm. people I don't think really realize it's not like a set in stone thing. And so at night, when we secrete melatonin, um, that may have an impact on our pancreatic beta cells, the cells that produce insulin, mm-hmm. um, to make them a little bit less, uh, slightly lower function at night, or might be impacting the insulin receptor itself. So that make you a little more insulin resistant, which is super interesting. So you might eat the exact same thing at 9 PM 
and 9 a.m. and have a totally different response at 9 p.m., often much higher. Yeah. Um, so what that does is help people realize, okay, the way actually what it does for me is I tend to become more keto throughout the day. I would say like, I'm not, I'm not on a ketogenic diet at all. Um, but I would say I like, I, I lean towards keto as the day goes on. So I'm going to have more of my carbohydrates, my complex carbohydrates in the beginning of the day or at lunch. And I actually say probably mostly at lunch, yeah. um, because morning, I don't want to, I do not want a big glucose spike. Cause I do not want to start my day on a roller yeah. coaster. So that's often like very high protein, uh, a little bit more fat and, um, and then lunch, maybe that's, and I work out more midday. So I'll probably do a little bit like the sweet potato would be then, or like yeah, the yeah, fruit yeah. or the, um, beans or the lentils, the stuff that's going to be the complex carbohydrates. So I'm kind of going to be moving a lot during that time of the day. It's not nighttime yet. I'm insulin sensitive. And then by dinner, it's like, it's like salad, protein, sparkling water, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and, and I think for people who are like, well, I'm never going to give up dessert and I'm not going to do that. It's like, maybe just have it earlier in the day. Yeah, have yeah, it yeah. At noon. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not going to give that stuff up or, or like do it around your most activity, take a walk mm-hmm. after eating it. Um, it also just sets you up so much better for sleep because if you spike at the end of the day and you are, are more insulin resistant at that time, that glucose is going to be sitting in your bloodstream while you're sleeping. Yeah. And that can actually have an impact on sleep quality and also just kind of like affecting, you don't, you just don't want that high concentration mm-hmm. of blood sugar sitting in your bloodstream throughout the night. And you'll see people on their continuous glucose monitors have this sort of like bouncing around that happens at night. If they spike, let's say at like eight or 9 PM, they might crash sort of as they get into their sleep. And then the body, the crash, like what's called postprandial hypoglycemia. So the, the crash that follows a spike, maybe that's happening at one in the morning. And then it actually might wake them up because the, a crash actually for the body is sort of like a primitive stress signal. Like, Oh my God, your blood sugar is low. You need to like get it back up. Yeah. And you sometimes see people even snacking in the middle of the night Yeah. Um, or, or, or having a little bit of difficulty going back to sleep. And so the more you can keep your blood sugar stable as you go into bedtime, the, I think the better the sleep quality is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, nighttime was my time when I was most reactive. Like most days I could keep a pretty stable breakfast, lunch and eat a really wide variety of foods, but I became really sensitive the closer I got to, to nighttime, you know, like after the five o'clock hour I was like, Oh man, my body's kind of reacting to a little bit of everything. And I think, um, my body just loves food earlier in the day. And I'm more of that morning person anyway. So I can totally get that, you know, feel that in my body. And you can feel this too. When you start to see it, I feel like you can start to then pinpoint, okay, I'm feeling this way. Even when you're not wearing it, you can start to see those changes because you felt them and you've, you, you experience it in real time, which is so cool. Now, one of the things I was surprised by was that during my sleep period, I was a little higher than I anticipated on my average glucose. And then like the time that people would take your, your fasting glucose, you know, if you went and got a blood test by that point, by the time I would actually get my blood taken, I was back down, um, well under a hundred, but some nights I was sitting over like 103, hundred. Is that norm? Like, is this norm? Like I've seen this on, I've had a number of clients do this too. And it seems like we've all kind of been a little bit higher than I anticipated during the sleeping mm-hmm. hours. 
Are you seeing that or is this not, not good? Tell me it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing I'll mention is that, um, that sensors like any wearable Mm -hmm. have some degree of inaccuracy. Mm -hmm. And so the sensors themselves, and this is actually on par with most like wrist wearables and things like that have 10% mean amplitude relative difference from blood levels. Mm -hmm. So it's called MARD. And so you, I think with these sensors, you never want to take the actual number itself, like too seriously without double checking, Mm -hmm. like, like on a finger prick or a blood level. Um, because if your sensor is 10% off and you're actually at like 92 at night, but you're seeing like one Oh three, it can really stress you out, but might not be. So I'm always, I'm, I always advocate for like double checking hard to do at night, but you could always Mm take, yeah, do sort of like a mental calibration. I mean, the sensors are super accurate. They're accurate enough to be used for Mm -hmm. like diabetes management and insulin dosing. So it's like people should feel confident with it, but also not get like so stressed out without double checking. Not that you're getting super, Mm -hmm. but you know what people do sort of like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, it's one Oh one. And it's like, they prick their finger and it might be like 94. So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just one thing to note. The second thing I would note is that the glucose number itself is directionally helpful, but really it's if, if there is a question like that, like, okay, is my glucose too high at night? Like what's going on? I would then go towards like the deeper metabolic health testing mm-hmm. with blood testing to get a, the real mm-hmm. answer to like, what is my level of metabolic health? And so like those tests that I would then recommend to someone is absolutely a fasting insulin level. Probably the most important test any American can get today is a fasting insulin level. Um, so that they know their level of insulin resistance, Mm -hmm. um, and how much back to that conversation we were having about like the insulin block that happens when the mitochondria are dysfunctional, um, when that happens and the body becomes less efficient at clearing glucose from the bloodstream, the way the body mm-hmm. compensates is by producing more insulin. It's like, yeah. no, 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 we got to get this sugar out of the bloodstream. Yeah. We're going to produce more insulin. And so what's so interesting is that early in this sort of metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance pathway towards type type, type two diabetes progression, what will happen is insulin levels are really high, but glucose might actually look pretty normal mm. because, or like slightly high normal mm. because the body's compensating. Yeah. And so I would tell people get a fasting insulin. We ideally want that to be, be- between about two and six mm-hmm. milli IU per milliliter. Um, the, the standard ranges will say that like less than 25 is normal, which is totally not normal. Mm. It should be like well under 10. Mm-hmm. Um, then I would have people, you you should get a fasting glucose from the blood. Uh, when you get a fasting insulin drawn, the reason for that is because you can go online and go into what's called MD calc. Um, you can just search MD calc, uh, and then search for this calculation that you can just plug in your numbers called HOMA IR, um, which is the, it's called the homeostatic model of insulin resistance. Um, and so that's essentially like a standardized like sort of calculation that's used in research to understand insulin sensitivity. So that that's really helpful. If you can get an insulin and a glucose drawn at the exact same time from your blood, you can calculate a home IR. And that's like a really, you know, clear cut way of understanding insulin uh, sensitivity. Your doctor will not do this for you. You're going to have to like (laughs) ask for these tests and do it on your own. Then I would also get a full cholesterol panel 
and really zero in on your triglyceride and HDL level, which most people will probably have this, um, Mm -hmm. from their doctor, from their last physical, um, HDL is like the quote unquote, good cholesterol triglycerides are a form of fat in the body that are really a marker of, I would say like excess carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. like a lot of excess carbohydrates and refined carbohydrates are going to, when they can't be used properly, a lot of them are going to turn to triglycerides. Alcohol also has an impact on triglyceride levels. Um, and so I think of high triglyceride levels as a sign that we really need to clean up dietary quality, Mm. um, and really move towards more like whole foods, less refined and processed grains and sugars. And so you can do what's called an, uh, uh, triglyceride to HDL ratio, uh, where you basically can do that calculation on your iPhone and basically do that. And, um, and you want that to be about like less than 1.5, even less than one. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's say you're triglycerides are 70 and your HDL is 70, that would be a triglyceride to HDL ratio of one. Um, and that is, that is great. If it's like three, um, that's not ideal. Um, so yeah, so you want basically triglycerides to be low HDL to be high and that triglyceride to HDL rate ratio to be, um, as low as possible. Um, triglycerides often will be even that test on its own can be a helpful marker of metabolic function. Um, if a lot of standard lab tests will say less than 150 uh, is normal, I would shoot for less than 100 or less than 70 even for triglycerides. Um, there's other tests as well. And, and then in HDL, you want it to be up towards like 60 to 90. Again, like the that's one of the only tests you want to be higher. Um, but uh, HDL, they'll often say like above 40 to 45, but really 60 to 90 yeah. is going to be better. Mm-hmm. So there's, so I, you know, it's getting, there's other tests you can get uric acid, which is also a metabolic marker. Um, you want this like down below like 4.5 or so I, we can link to a blog post that levels has done, which reviews all the literature on these tests, as well as expert opinion from our, 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 uh, our advisory board, mm-hmm. um, who are some of the premier thought leaders in metabolic health, academic physicians. Um, and that's a really helpful blog post to basically like print out and sit down with it and your lab tests and just understand where you are. But circling all the way back to your question, if there are anomalies on the glucose monitor data where you're like, I don't know what this means. The next step is to get the full sort of picture Mm -hmm. of metabolic lab tests, which together it's sort of like reading the tea leaves of like, being able to answer that question of like, how metabolically healthy am I? Yeah. yeah. Um, the standard way of doing that in, in the U S healthcare system would be just looking at a fasting glucose test mm-hmm. and basically saying if it's below hundred milligrams per deciliter after eight hours of no food and drink. So like fasting in the morning, if it's under a hundred, that's considered non-diabetic and would be a doctor would probably tell you like, Oh, you're fine metabolically. Mm-hmm but it's not enough. That test is just, it's not good enough. I I absolutely don't think people can say for sure. Like if I'm under a hundred, I'm metabolically healthy because we actually know that as you move from the low normal range of fasting glucose, which is like more like 70 to 85 Mm -hmm. milligrams per liter up towards a hundred, 85 to a hundred, basically your risk of lots of different diseases goes way up. Mm -hmm. So just being in the normal range is really not synonymous with metabolically healthy. Low normal is great, but you still want to know your fasting insulin level. And the reason for that is because you and I, for instance, could both have a fasting glucose level of 83 milligrams per deciliter, which is great. That's like 
lower end of normal, we both could be like, great. But let's say I had a fasting insulin level of 20 and you had a fasting insulin level of two. Mm -hmm. My body is working so much harder to produce insulin, to keep it at 83 than yours is. Mm -hmm. And so even with a healthy fasting glucose level, knowing a little bit more of the metabolic health tests can tell you more where you stand, even having that one additional test. Yeah. Um, and then again with, let's say we both had a fasting glucose of 83, my fasting insulin was 20 and yours was two and my triglycerides are 140 and yours are 75. Yeah. That's another thing saying like, I'm going to go on to have problems and you're not. Yeah. And so this is power. Mm -hmm. Um, so any anomalies on the glucose monitor, I'm always a fan for further testing, deeper testing. Yep. 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 So when, you know, people are talking about metabolic health and they're like, oh my gosh, I really want to work on this. Obviously, um, levels is a huge tool to help understand this, but what are some like specifics we've talked about sleep and, you know, meal timing exercise, like what are some things that overall you're like, okay, I think we need to start taking this more seriously here in the health space as people are working on their diets. Can you give people like a few tips as they start this journey? Absolutely. So the, the, the number one thing, Mm -hmm. you know, I would suggest to everyone is to move towards meal towards more real unprocessed foods. Mm -hmm. Like that's just number one, as much as you can move away from ultra processed foods, the better close to 70% of our grocery stores now are ultra processed foods. And these are just doing nothing to help our metabolic health. Mm -hmm. That does not mean you have to not eat anything that comes from a bag or a box. There's actually a lot of minimally processed healthful foods that come in bags and boxes. And like an example of this would be like flaxseed crackers, like flax. I love flackers. I love Ellis flats. They're basically made with like sunflower seeds and flax seeds and a few spices and water and apple cider vinegar. So like it's in a bag, but it's got fiber. It's got organic ingredients. It's health. It's healthy. Yeah. But you know, eliminating essentially every single thing from your kitchen that has refined sugars, refined ultra processed wheat or flour, Mm -hmm. um, and industrially manufactured seed oils, in my opinion, just doing that, just making sure you're eliminating those things is like the best first step you can take mm-hmm. to eating more health, metabolically healthy foods. Cause that eliminates like a lot of the foods that are, are going to really overwhelm our biology from like cookies and cakes and pastries and this and that. Um, and there's so many alternatives, there's nut flours, there's coconut flour, there's, you know, things that are, um, less ultra processed forms of like flowers. You can still eat a lot of the foods that you love, like tortillas or cakes or whatever, but with ingredients that are going to just have less processing and more nutrients. Um, so that's kind of the unholy Trinity in my mind is like ultra processed grains, sugars, and industrial seed oils that Mm -hmm. make it into so many of our foods and really stress ourselves. Um, but yeah, so more more real unprocessed food is kind of number one and trying to buy food that um ideally like is and this is like this is like a big next step, you know, so so just starting with that that you know first step is yeah. great, but like moving towards food from um ideally like organic or from a farmers market can be really nice as well because you're going to get more micronutrients with that food. Food that's grown in better soil um, is going to have more of these micronutrients like vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and polyphenols that really support our cellular machinery for metabolic health. So, um, 
so that's that's ideal and it also then eliminates the the pesticide exposure or yeah. the synthetic pesticide exposure that we that are really bad for our metabolic health and our mito, our, our microbiome health so basically clean unprocessed food is is the foundation of everything mm-hmm. and um you know there's 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 community support groups that can help with this there's like the whole 30 program yeah. there's different doorways to to do that um so that would be number 1 and then i think Um, in terms of sort of some of the other pillars, uh, it's the simplest thing with exercise is to move more throughout the day. It is not about doing more intense exercise, Mm -hmm. just walk like your life will change. I think also, um, getting more resistance training on board is good. And even like move away from the term resistance training, like just lifting heavier things in your life. Like it doesn't mean it's not, you know, we didn't have resistance training 200 years ago. It's like, just you want to stress the muscles so that they know to grow. Mm-hmm. That, that's the key. It's like the, the information to make more muscle is to have heavy things in your hands. Mm-hmm. So, or, you know, and on, you know, and so you need to give the body that signal for them to know to grow. Mm. And I just think about that all the time. Like give it the signal to grow, lift something heavy. And that could be your body weight. It could be, it could be stuff around the house. It could be gardening. It could be moving things. It could be weights, whatever. Um, but the more muscle you have, the more mitochondria you have, the more mitochondria you have, the more ability you're going to have to do this metabolic processing and less gumming up of the system. And so that, um, lifting heavy things plus moving more throughout the day, I think is the recipe for like a healthy, healthy life. And it doesn't need to be that, um, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't need to be like a super, like the, the most structured thing in the world. Um, so that's, that's the second piece. Um, and then the third highest yield thing for sure is sleep. Like mm-hmm. the magic number for metabolic health seems to be between seven and eight hours asleep at night. Interestingly, less than seven hours. I mean that your metabolic risk goes just like yeah way up, but above eight hours, actually the risk goes up. So what we really want to focus on is, um, quality of sleep, consistency of sleep and quantity of sleep. Mm. And there's, so there's three different aspects of sleep. Quantity is like the seven to eight hours. And I like to use, I use a Fitbit because what it does is it actually tells me how much time I was in bed and then how much time I was actually asleep. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those numbers are 15% different. Yeah. So I might be in bed for eight hours and I'm like, great. I got eight eight hours of sleep, but really I got six hours and 40 minutes of sleep. So making sure that time, a sleep number falls between seven and eight is really important to me. And I've noticed a big, a big difference with how I feel with, with that. Um, consistency means sort of a a bedtime and awake time that ideally are consistent day to day. This is the hardest thing in my, like of all the things that I struggle with, that is number one. Cause I'm very much a like, Oh, I'm so productive right now. I need to like, stay up a little bit later. And then I sleep in a little bit later and like, but actually consistency, the research shows is like really important because it's kind of this entraining cue for your circadian rhythms, which control so many of our metabolic pathways. So that's a good one. So, and it doesn't really matter if it's like 12 to eight or 11 to seven or 10 to six, it's more like, are you doing it the same Mm -hmm. most days? And then quality of course, is like how good your sleep architecture is. And that has a lot to do with um, things like alcohol before bed, um, how close you ate to bedtime, both those things, eating close to bedtime and alcohol for be- before bedtime can really hurt sleep quality. And then any light in the room can affect sleep quality. So 
even light from like an alarm clock or through the corner of a window, certainly if a TV's on at night, even if you feel like you're sleeping well, those can actually significantly impact our sleep quality. So like pitch dark room, super quiet, um, ideally with not a lot of food or alcohol yeah. right before bed. Um, and, and so, th- so, but, but those things together, and if, if you had to focus on one, I would say get the quantity, like yeah, just like yeah. try yeah. to get the seven to eight hours and it will just be massively mm-hmm. helpful. So, so lots of things with metabolic health, but the three top ones would be focus on sleep, focus on more movement throughout the day and growing more muscle. And especially if you are a woman between the ages of like 35 and 65 muscle, 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 Mm -hmm. we lose so much of it as we get into perimenopause and menopause. And that's just going to set us up for so many problems later in life. So like muscle build it. Um, and then real unprocessed food and avoid refined sugars, refined grains and industrial seed oils. Yeah. I love how practical it all is. You know, like you said, it doesn't take all these, um, very expensive, like biohacking treatments, which are all great, but it's just like this realistic, just everyday life that we can all implement. Now we're running out of time, but I do have like one question that I've been asked a number of times. And it was, you know, like if I try levels and I experience it, like, should I, is it best to buy like three months at a time? Or Mm -hmm. should I buy like a couple months and then take a couple months off and make some changes and then come back and see if anything's going to be different? Like, is there a right way to do this? Or Mm -hmm. have you found a way that's any one way that's better than another? Great question. And I will preface this by saying that with our business model, we actually don't, we don't make money off selling sensors. We make money off our membership. Mm -hmm. So, so I have no stake in saying, telling people like to get more sensors or not more sensors. So just, just to put that out there. Um, so I think there's lots of different ways to do it. And we've had people be very successful with it, with lots of different cadences of sensors. So just to let people know, like what this means by sensors. So the continuous glucose monitor you put it on the back of your arm and it based on which you can get two different brands of sensors from levels, Dexcom or Abbott. And the Abbott lasts for two weeks. You stick it on your arm and it's measuring your glucose 24 hours a day, sending it to your smartphone and you wear it for 14 days and then you peel it off and then you put a new one on for 14 days. So one month of levels means two Abbott sensors, which is 28 days of monitoring with Dexcom, which is the other, um, they last for 10 days on the arm. So you put it on, you wear it for 10 days, you peel it off, you put a new one on 10 days, peel it off. And then a new one, 10 days, peel it off. So both are like a month of glucose monitoring, but two different sensors. One's 28 days, one's 30, one's two sensors, one's three sensors. So that's a month. And you do levels by month, like mm-hmm. by a month. But once you have those sensors, you could split them up how you want. You could do two weeks and then take a month off and do another two weeks. Cause you have two sensors in the box. You know, you could split them up. You could do them in 28 days straight up to you. I think a great way to do it, mm-hmm. um, is to start with one month and of sensors and in the first week or so, just like eat exactly what you normally yeah. eat, like mm-hmm. totally normal diet and kind of get a baseline. Don't try and optimize anything. Just mm-hmm. see where you're at in the second and third week. And, and like really try and experiment as much as you can. Mm-hmm. So maybe eat like 
certain foods in isolation. Like what happens if I just eat like one full cup of sweet potatoes? What if I, what happens if I eat a full cup of rice? What if I happens yeah. if I eat a full cup of oatmeal, like kind of like see what your carb, like sort of reactions are to specific types of food. What does one or two bananas do to me? Um, and then maybe like, see, like if something's surprising, do some modulation. So like, okay, I'm going to do two bananas again today, but with almond butter, chia seeds, flax seeds, and some yogurt and see, or, or I'm going to do it with two hard boiled eggs beforehand to see how that protein and fat affects my glucose response. Take walks after meals. Um, you know, start to zone zero in on what's happening. If you are stressed and really make note of all these different things, there's a lot of other experiments you could do, like taking a shot of apple cider vinegar before a meal, which can be an insulin sensitizing strategy that actually like works for really well for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. vinegar before meals, all of this is on our blog. So, um, lots more there in terms of how to kind of test these things. Um, and then if you're only doing it for one month in the fourth week, make that like your super optimization. Yeah. So take everything you learned from like what foods are working for you, what aren't, what strategies are working, and then just like go hard to Mm -hmm. see like how stable you can get your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. And that can be really, really empowering. Um, another experiment people can do is like take, um, categories of food. So like fruit Mm -hmm. and be, and try like five different fruits. Maybe each morning you try a different fruit and see within a category how do different ones affect you? So like for me personally, grapes spike my glucose a lot. Mine too. But yes. <laughs> yeah. Apples, fairly unripe pears, oranges, berries don't tend to spike me a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to t- sort of see like, okay, like fruit is not all the same thing. It, there's a lot of different, and it doesn't mean that grapes are a bad food. It's more like I need to, if I want to keep my blood sugar more stable, I have to think about grapes differently. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. maybe I need to only eat them if I'm also eating cheese mm-hmm. and something with like fat to slow down the absorption. So that's kind of fun. So one month you can get a ton out of the program and it's, it's, it's high priced because sensors are expensive mm-hmm. right now. Unfortunately, I think the cost is going to come down of these sensors levels that make the sensors, these other hard, but, but so if you only can do it for one month, you can get a lot out of it. We have other people who do it seasonally. Mm -hmm. So every three months they learn and they will also get lab testing when they start. We actually offer lab testing to kind of give you that metabolic health picture. And then they'll use the tool for a month or two months and then like retest their labs and kind of do it seasonally to sort of like maybe then three or four times a year, they have their lab work and then they have this optimization tool. We have some people who have goal, very specific goals. Like they want to lose 50 pounds or something. And they might do it for like eight months straight as this like very, as like an accountability buddy. Mm -hmm. And that's been very successful for, we've had several members who have lost a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. Um, one member lost like 80 pounds. Um, and so she really used it like consistently as part of this like goal-based journey. Um, So that's, and then we have athletes who use it in their training season to basically like optimize their like fat and carb utilization. So they might train in like a low carb state. So they become better at fat oxidation. That's that concept of metabolic flexibility that you sometimes hear about where like, if they're running their, they're doing their Ironman training in a lower carb diet, 
they may become really efficient at burning both fat and carbs during their long-term mm-hmm. endurance event. And then during their actual seat. So they use it as part of their yeah kind of like, like planning. So there's all these different ways to do it and none is right or wrong. Mm-hmm. You can certainly get a lot out of one month. Oh yeah. You can for certainly sure. learn yeah. a lot. I've been wearing one on and off for four years and I still learn a ton. Yeah. Um, so that, so that, so there's really no wrong way to do it, but, but if it's for more accountability, like longer term can be better. If you only have one month, I would just say, choose a month when you can kind of go hard on the learnings and the food and have control over your, mm-hmm. you know, kitchen and stuff and, uh, and just get the most out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It has been so beneficial for me. Even like you said, in one month, you can learn a tremendous amount of information that is so helpful. Now I'm sure everyone's wondering, okay, where can I learn more? How can I get my hands on this? Like, can you tell us all the things about where we can yes. learn more? Cause you have a, an amazing website with so much information just on what you're learning, um, research, all of the things. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. So I would say for anyone who wants to learn more about anything we've talked about, um, the levels blog is the best place to go. It's, um, levelshealth.com slash blog. And it's so research focused, so practical. There's science articles, there's experiment articles, there's learnings, articles, member stories that can help you understand like what you could potentially, you know, get out of this. So that's an amazing resource. Our Instagram and our Twitter, which is at levels also has a lot of that blog content that's been boiled down to sort of like shorter form. So I highly recommend that. Um, we, um, I am at Dr. Casey's kitchen on Instagram and Twitter, and I post a little bit about metabolic health stuff as well. And then, um, and then I think that people also, there are codes that they can use to get levels through you, um, which we can certainly share now or yeah. Yeah. Well, we are offering a chance to win a free levels through a giveaway. And that is at levels.link backslash the living well giveaway where you can sign up to win a free levels kit and membership, which is pretty awesome. Um, cause like you said, there is a cost associated to this, but I really do think sometimes that the, the value of the cost to that for me when I did it and the number of months that I've done it has been absolutely, um, worth it to get the information that you can get because there's a lot of ideas and it's like, okay, but how is it affecting me? And this really helps to see how is my body responding to the things that I do. So check it out. You guys are going to love it. And if you have more questions, let me know. But I so thank you for being on the show and for sharing your wealth of information and for starting such an amazing company that is going to help so many people um, long-term. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to chat and uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Yes, of course. I hope you learned just as much as I did from that show. And I'm so grateful that Dr. Means could come on the show and share more. Now, don't forget to grab that giveaway. Remember, it's only open for the next couple of weeks. And if you happen to miss it, there's still a lot of great information you can check out over at the Levels blog. Again, to grab that giveaway, it's levels.link backslash the living well giveaway, or you can just learn more at thelivingwell.com. Okay, that's it for today's show. In the next podcast, I'm back with my husband as we share our own shocking journey with understanding our blood glucose levels. Can't wait to see you back here in the next show.